Before we get started, please don't forget to rate and review wherever possible. It really helps our podcast find the ears of listeners just like you. Also, if you have a story to tell, don't forget to submit it via email at contact at campfirecoldpod.com or leave a voicemail message at 720-297-8608. You can also follow us anywhere socially at Campfire Cult Pod and visit us online at campfirecultpod.com. to the Campfire Cult Podcast. From a camper van deep in the haunted woods, I bring you first-hand accounts of chilling encounters with the paranormal. Step into the night and take a peek into the realm where reality and the supernatural collide. My name is Jazz, and I'll be your host. Welcome back, campers. Tonight, we're going to take a deep dive into the mysterious realm of the Sasquatch. Join me on a journey through the dense forest and remote wilderness where eyewitnesses share their spine-tingling experiences from chilling howls in the night to awe-inspiring glimpses in the moonlight. Get ready to embark on an expedition into the unknown as we unravel the enigma that is Bigfoot. We're kicking things off this week with an account from President Theodore Roosevelt's book, The Wilderness Hunter. It was told to me by a grizzled, weather-beaten old mountain hunter named Bauman, who was born and had spent all his life on the frontier. He must have believed what he said, for he could hardly repress a shudder at certain points of the tales. When the event occurred, Bauman was still a young man and was trapping with a partner among the mountains dividing the forks of the salmon from the head of Wisdom River. Not having had much luck, He and his partner determined to go up into a particularly wild and lonely pass through which ran a small stream said to contain many beaver. The pass had an evil reputation because the year before a solitary hunter who had wandered into it was there slain, seemingly by a wild beast, the half-eaten remains being afterwards found by some mining prospectors who had passed his camp only the night before. The memory of this event, however, weighed very lightly with the two trappers, who were as adventurous and hardy as others of their kind. They then struck out on foot through the vast, gloomy forest, and in about four hours reached a little open glade where they concluded to camp, as signs of game were plenty. There was still an hour or two of daylight left, and after building a lean-to and throwing down and opening their packs, they started upstream. They were surprised to find that during their absence something apparently a bear, had visited camp and had rummaged about among their things, scattering the contents of their packs and in sheer wantonness destroying their lean-to. The footprints of the beast were quite plain, but at first they paid no particular heed to them, busying themselves with rebuilding the lean-to, laying out their beds and stores and lighting the fire. While Bauman was making ready supper, it being already dark, his companion began to examine the tracks more closely, 
and soon took a brand from the fire to follow them up, where the intruder had walked along a game trail after leaving the camp. Coming back to the fire, he stood by it a minute or two, peering out into the darkness, and suddenly remarked, Bauman, that bear has been walking on two legs. Bauman laughed at this, but his partner insisted that he was right, and upon again examining the tracks with a torch, they certainly did seem to be made by but two paws, or feet. However, it was too dark to make sure. After discussing whether the footprints could possibly be those of a human being, and coming to the conclusion that they could not be, the two men rolled up in their blankets and went to sleep under the lean-to. At midnight, Bauman was awakened by some noise and sat up in his blankets. As he did so, his nostrils were struck by a strong, wild beast odor and he caught the loom of a great body in the darkness at the mouth of the lean-to. Grasping his rifle, he fired at the vague, threatening shadow, but must have missed, for immediately afterwards he heard the smashing of the underwood, as the thing, whatever it was, rushed off into the impenetrable blackness of the forest and the night. After this, the two men slept but little, sitting up by the rekindled fire, but they heard nothing more. In the morning, they started out to look at the few traps they had set the previous evening and put out new ones. By an unspoken agreement, they kept together all day and returned to camp towards evening. On nearing it, they saw hardly to their astonishment that the lean-to had been again torn down. The visitor of the preceding day had returned and in wanton malice had tossed about their camp kit and bedding and destroyed the shanty. The ground was marked up by its tracks, and on leaving the camp, it had gone along the soft earth by the brook, where the footprints were as plain as if on snow. And, after a careful scrutiny of the trail, it certainly did seem as if, whatever the thing was, it had walked off on but two legs. The men, thoroughly uneasy, gathered a great heap of dead logs and kept up a roaring fire throughout the night, one or the other sitting on guard most of the time. About midnight, the thing came down through the forest opposite, across the brook, and stayed there on the hillside for nearly an hour. They could hear the branches crackle as it moved about, and several times it uttered a harsh, grating, long-drawn moan, a peculiarly sinister sound. Yet it did not venture near the fire. In the morning, the two trappers, after discussing the strange events of the last 36 hours, decided that they would shoulder their packs and leave the valley that afternoon. All the morning they kept together, picking up trap after trap, each one empty. On first leaving camp, they had the disagreeable sensation of being followed. In the dense spruce thickets, they occasionally heard a branch snap after they had passed, and now and then, there were slight rustling noises among the small pines to one side of them. At noon, they were back within a couple of miles of camp. In the high, bright sunlight, their fears seemed absurd to the two armed men, accustomed as they were, through long years of lonely wandering in the wilderness, to face every kind of danger from man, brute, or element. There were still three beaver traps to collect from a little pond in a wide ravine nearby. Bauman volunteered to gather these and bring them in, while his companion went ahead to camp and made ready the packs. Reaching the pond, Bauman found three beavers in the traps, one of which had been pulled loose and carried into a beaver house. He took several hours in securing and preparing the beaver, and when he started homewards, he marked, with some uneasiness, how low the sun was getting. 
At last he came to the edge of the little glade where the camp lay and shouted as he approached it, but got no answer. The campfire had gone out, though the thin blue smoke was still curling upwards. Near it lay the packs wrapped and arranged. At first Bauman saw nobody, nor did he receive an answer to his call. Stepping forward, he again shouted, and as he did so, his eye fell on the body of his friend, stretched beside the trunk of a great fallen spruce. Rushing towards it, the horrified trapper found that the body was still warm, but that the neck was broken, while there were four great fang marks in the throat. The footprints of the unknown beast creature, printed deep in the soft soil, told the whole story. The unfortunate man, having finished his packing, had sat down on the spruce log with his face to the fire and his back to the dense woods to wait for his companion. It had not eaten the body, but apparently had romped and rolled around it in uncouth, ferocious glee, occasionally rolling over and over it, and had then fled back into the soundless depths of the woods. Bowman utterly unnerved, and believing that the creature with which he had to deal was something either half-human or half-devil. Some great goblin beast abandoned everything but his rifle and struck off with speed down the pass, not halting until he reached the beaver meadows, where the hobbled ponies were still grazing. Mounting, he rode onwards through the night until far beyond the reach of pursuit. There are many other states in the United States that have reported giant creatures that roam about their mountain wildernesses, However, I do not have enough verified information to fully go into it at the present time. Anyway, that would be another book. In this next story, it proves that not all Bigfoot experiences are scary ones. In Oregon, two adventurous teens prone to misadventure find themselves in an encounter with a massive and strangely human being. A long time ago, well, a very long time ago now, my friend Jason and I were prone to getting involved in many types of misadventures. And this one, while seemingly pointless at the start, proved to be one to remember. While I am uncertain over the name of the campsite in question, I do know that it was one my father and I had visited on many occasions. The site had plenty of parking for camping vehicles, a close-by restroom for people to relax and drop a few pounds in, a nearby kiddie pond stocked with smaller fish that couldn't escape and were just waiting for their respective number to come up, and a nearby river with a boat rental place for people to troll the river or just fish leisurely. Surrounding all of this was open woodland, offering a tree-lined canopy over the camp parking and mountains around us. It was a lovely place to be and a welcome place for two young teens to adventure and explore. One particular night, after a lousy day of fishing, Jason and I decided that hiding in the brush overlooking the river as darkness set in around us would offer a great opportunity to see the nightlife come alive. And it kind of did. We heard, rather than saw, bats overhead as they picked off insects over the open water. We saw raccoons heading up towards the sleeping camp area with the likely idea of going through trash. There were even some deer that strolled through the dark, weary of anything out of the ordinary. Since I'd fallen into the kiddie pond, I guess I smelled okay to pass as non-threatening. As all of this was happening, the familiar sounds of buzzing insects and chirping crickets berated our ears, reminding us of just where we were and that there was life all around us. But even reminders have a tendency to go mute, 
like a snooze alarm not properly set. The silence was not an abrupt one, but rather a dying down swooping steadily over us from one side to the other. The clicks and chirps from the bats stopped. The buzzing of the flying insects around us retreated. The chirping of the crickets, in sections, went silent. Having been accustomed to outdoor evening antics, my friend and I both understood that at that point we were less alone than we had been previously. Where was the threat coming from, though, and what could it be? We both had our minds set on it being something like a coyote or possibly a mountain lion. Whatever it was, we knew that staying still was in our best interest. Long minutes passed in shared silence, broken only by our shallow breaths of expectancy as we strained our eyes in the darkness, trying to pick out anything moving through the leafed canopy and ground brush. A group of crickets off to our left started to chirp again, less lively than before, and we thought that perhaps any sign of possible danger had passed. Suddenly, there was a tinge of an odd scent in the air, earthy, musky, and not at all like the kiddie pool scent that now defined me. Where was it coming from, though? Long moments passed in the darkness. To the left, the band of crickets sounded like they were trying to play their version of the national anthem. The sentiment may have been appreciated by some, but I found it to be needlessly patriotic at an odd time much like the entirety of the script of the film, Big Trouble in Little China. I was just about to stand up and head back to camp while we could still find it when an odd shape seemed to detach itself from the trees before us, close to the riverbank. My heart stopped in my throat. The form was huge, almost monstrous in size, but strangely human in its movement. It cast a heavy gaze to the right and to the left, before turning and beckoning to another unseen form still hiding from our shared line of sight. What was going on here? In no time, another form, smaller than the other, came out of the brush and scurried to join the larger at the edge of the stream. Jason and I were curious, though equally frightened over what we were seeing. Was this a mother and child drinking from the river? Huge hands attached to long arms scooped water from the river and brought it up to the face and rubbed it over the hair on the arms and body. They're bathing, I thought. Whatever we had stumbled upon was bathing, both parent and child. Jason and I watched in interest as the ritual before us went on. The entire time, the only thought I was dwelling on was how quiet these beings were. They were like the raccoons we had observed before these two came along, their movements over the terrain absolutely silent. Eventually, the two left their place along the river and melted back into the black of the trees around us. Long minutes of uncertainty passed before the insect noises started up again in chorus, and we knew that we were safe to head back through the bramble to camp again. As quietly as we could, we did just that. The meeting, though brief, had left the two of us with little question as to the validity that there may very well be some thing out there, uncertain, unidentified, but absolutely alive and well. Next, in the desolation wilderness near Camino, California, a perfect haven for camping and fishing, a seemingly routine trip with friends turns into a nightmarish encounter with an unidentifiable creature. 
When I was younger, I used to go to a place called Desolation Wilderness near Camino, California. It was the perfect place for camping and hiking, realizing that it had been a few years since my last trip. I talked to a friend of mine to go camping and fishing. We managed to talk another friend into coming with us, and then we were off. We arrived around 1 p.m. and decided to hike upstream from a place called Wright's Lake. And then when we found a good spot, we would set up camp. After walking for a couple of hours, a ranger found us hiking and told us that we actually weren't even technically in Desolation Wilderness yet, and that we needed to keep hiking for a bit longer. I started tearing down the camp, but I guess the other two guys were not as enthusiastic about the trip as I was. They left for Pollock Pines to find a hotel room. When they left, I hiked up a bit farther, but started to worry about the amount of time I had to find a place and set up my camp before dark. As I hiked, I tried to remember the ranger's instructions, but ended up getting lost. Finally, I found a granite cliff with a stream that had a beautiful pool of water and was right on the tree line. I thought it was perfect, so I set up camp and started fishing. When the sun had set and the sky was dark, I decided to go to sleep. Cozy in my sleeping bag, I started to drift off, but then I heard something growl outside my tent. I grabbed the 45 compact handgun from its case and looked down through the screen on the front of the tent. From where I was standing, I could only see a dark figure that looked around four and a half feet tall standing near the trees. Thinking that it was a bear, I started yelling, hoping that I would scare it away. It didn't move. I then fired a shot at a dead tree nearby. That startled it, and it ran back into the forest. But to my surprise, it didn't go very far. I climbed back into my tent. Then I heard crashing sounds. It was the sound of rocks falling off the cliff and hitting the pool below and the rocks around it. This was unnerving. I climbed out of my tent a few times, but I couldn't see anything, even though the moon was bright and the white granite rocks reflected its paleness. Crashing rocks hit every few minutes until around two in the morning. Then it stopped. But I heard something rustling just outside my tent. I yelled at it and tried to scare it off, but instead of scaring it, I heard a very deep growling sound in return. At this point, I didn't want to wait until it got too close. So I got out of my tent and looked around. Nothing. I decided to shoot the tree again to see if the creature would react, then run back into the forest again, just like the first time. But it stopped again. As I listened to the sounds of it moving, I realized that it was running on two feet. This was not a bear. I didn't want to go back into my tent. I grabbed my sleeping bag and moved over to the middle of the big slab of white granite nearby. I felt safer and knew the forest was further away from me. But I could still hear the noises of rocks crashing. I prayed the sun would come up soon. At about 4.30 in the morning, I was awoken from my light sleep. I looked back at the trees but didn't see anything. So I looked back over at my tent. There it was standing at the side of my tent. I panicked and picked up my gun and shot to the side of the creature, but it didn't flinch. Then, with giant steps, it walked toward me. I shot at it again just to the side of it, but I wasn't sure if a 45 would even stop such a beast if I needed to actually shoot it. But it was my only hope. After the second shot rang out, it was off into the trees. Shaking like a leaf, I sat down clutching my gun. I waited for hours until the light started to appear in the sky. I broke camp and headed back down to Wright's Lake. That was the last time I saw the creature. 
That was also the last time I went to the desolation wilderness, and I will never go back. Next up, we're headed to 1981, where an Oregon man, widely considered eccentric by most, recounts a chilling encounter with a monster that lurks in the shadows of their secluded haven. For some strange reason, most people think I am slightly odd. I wholeheartedly agree and add the entire family is off just a bit also, but just enough to be fun. The normal world is extremely depressing and quite boring anyway. The following is a true story but a majority of those who read this may not agree. If that is the case with you, all I ask is to keep an open mind. Don't judge it by the lunatic that is telling the story. August of 1981. Angie and I were spending time at the family cabin in Oregon with her younger sister, Lynette, and our little one-year-old daughter, Marissa. This was one year and three months after the Mount St. Helens eruption in Washington State. This tidbit of information will make sense later in the story. The cabin is located in the middle of the National Forest, about one mile off the paved road, approximately eight miles in either direction to the nearest electric light. The area is in the wilderness, and the property has been in Angie's family for the last century. One dark, moonless night, we were sitting around the campfire, roasting s'mores, when I noticed that all the normal nighttime noises were strangely missing. I was about to mention it to Angie when the silence was pierced by a loud scream coming from the far side of the meadow. It sounded like a cross between a woman and a large cat. This cry was answered by an identical one coming from the direction of the footpath between the cabin and the outhouse. What was that? asked Angie. That's exactly what I was thinking at that moment. I have spent all my youth camping outdoors in many remote places, and I had never heard anything like that. Before I could formulate an answer for my now very scared wife and sister-in-law, we heard the sound of heavy footsteps approaching from the footpath. Thump, thump, thump. I have heard large deer running. This was not a deer. It sounded just like footsteps, only the thing creating them must be very heavy from the sound they were making. I stood up with the 22 caliber rifle that we always kept handy. The footsteps approached the fire and I leveled the gun above where I thought it was and let a couple of shots off to discourage any further interaction. The reason I shot over its head was that I knew a 22 would only irritate a large animal, and I definitely did not want to make this thing, whatever it was, mad. I told the girls to run to the cabin, which they did without any further encouragement. When I got to the door, I found it locked and after some frantic banging that was accompanied by a high-pitched blubbering and pleading for the girls to open the door to let me in. When they finally did, I asked them why they didn't let me in in the first place, and they said from the sounds I was making, they thought a pack of highly agitated Girl Scouts on crack were at the door. I stood in the middle of the cabin trying to gather my thoughts. What was that thing? One thing was for sure we were not spending the night in the cabin. I told the girls that I was going to go out the back door of the cabin with the rifle and the lantern. I told them to follow with the baby and get into the car. During that frantic dash, Angie, of course, falls in the shallow ditch next to the cabin and loses her shoe. As they were getting in the car, I was standing in the middle of the driveway, guarding them with the rifle. And when they were in, I then turned off the lantern and rushed to the car as the light faded to pitch black. 
I started the car and backed into the meadow, but to my horror, as I put the car into drive, it would not move forward. Holy shit, I thought as I struggled to get the car moving. It's got us by the bumper. Much to my relief, I eventually remembered the parking brake, and after releasing it, we drove down the dirt road towards the safety of the family farm in the valley. The first gate we had to open was located just 100 yards from the cabin at a tree-covered section of the dirt road. Getting out at that gate to unlock it in the pitch darkness was an experience I would not want to repeat. We made it to town around 12.30 a.m. and woke up Uncle David and Aunt Connie. Dave gave me a couple of skeptical looks as I breathlessly related the evening's events. He asked me how much I had to drink, and I told him I ran out of beer two days ago. He must have somewhat believed us because when we got up in the morning to return to the cabin to get our things, he had placed a 44 Magnum pistol on the front seat of my car. I called a friend who had an unusual experience while spelunking near Mount St. Helens. He said he had popped up out of a side air hole in the cave to find himself in the middle of a small clearing in the deep forest. He related that he immediately got a funny feeling that he was being watched. A moment later, something screamed at him from the edge of the forest, only to be answered by another scream from the other side of the clearing. I asked him to imitate the screams, and he did a perfect impression of last night's performance. After much research upon getting home to Idaho, I discovered that there had been many unusual sightings and vocalizations around Mount St. Helens before the eruption. That may have explained why we were having this experience. We were accompanied back up by a half a dozen cousins and a small arsenal of weaponry. The cabin appeared undisturbed when we arrived in mid-morning. We went down to the campfire area to trace back the approximate direction of the sounds and found large footprints in the dust around the cold fire pit. I walked towards where the footsteps had stopped and found a large footprint deep in the soil behind a fallen log about 60 feet from the fire. It was approximately three quarters of an inch deep with a well-defined outline of a shoeless foot, complete with heel and toes clearly defined. The big toe was slightly bent out away from the toes instead of the normal position you would find on a human footprint. I stood on the log and jumped down with my boots and the imprint was only a quarter inch deep. At that time, I weighed about 175 pounds. My density has increased over the years. We followed the footprints back across the meadow and found two other sets of prints at the far end of the meadow. The set we followed from the fire was the smallest at 14 inches long. The other two were 16 and 17 inches in length. The biggest and the smallest prints were traced back along the edge of the meadow toward the outhouse path, and it appears they were coming up the path towards the cabin, while the mid-sized prints stayed at the end of the meadow and apparently made the first scream that was answered by the pair coming near the cabin. We measured the stride on the largest prints and found it to be six feet, between toe and heel. We also found a pair of the largest prints at the window, on the end of the cabin around the corner, from the rear door we came out of on our panicked retreat. It seems from the position of the tracks that the creature was looking in the window. None of the family that has been staying at the cabin since it was built in the late 1940s ever had an experience like that. I'd been a member of Angie's family for a little over four years, and I think they shrugged it off to the weirdo Angie had married. In the dense wilderness of Fort Knox, Kentucky, during an Army cadet's training session in 2022, 
a young hunter and trainee unexpectedly encounters an unidentified creature lurking in the heart of the untamed woods. Back in the end of June 2022, I was at Fort Knox, Kentucky for Army cadet training. The last 12 days of our training consisted of three separate three-day field iterations where we would move as a platoon in the thick Kentucky woods and sleep in our sleeping bag systems at night. The Kentucky wilderness was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. I had never seen terrain so wild looking and land so untouched as this is government training property that goes on for so many acres. But some of the area we tracked through was actually state game land that hunters could technically be in while we trained. Although civilians would not be permitted to be in proximity to us as we were carrying M4s and other crew-served weapons, I've grown up a believer in Bigfoot, but it never crossed my mind that I may come across one. Being out in the wilderness for three days at a time and not being able to shower until the fourth day of each three-day field training exercise, our platoon of around 24 cadets would be stinky. But we also became one with the woods. We probably didn't smell at all to any creatures as we had been living in the mud, laying in it every day, all day. I'm also a hunter so I know a thing or two about my scent and receptiveness of animals. Also, our smell may not have necessarily mattered because this thick woods was being infiltrated by a bunch of cadets other than our platoon. Also, one thing to mention, for the training, I was one of the first regiments to go through, meaning that these woods don't really get occupied all year long, and my platoon was one of the first groups to get in there and start kicking shit up, if you know what I mean. If anything lived out there, there's a good chance it was scared shitless when a bunch of army people come in the woods and start shooting blanks. On the last day of the third three-day iteration, our instructors cut us a break. When we finally set up our patrol base for the night, our instructors told us that we didn't have to remain in a tactical environment. This meant we could talk amongst ourselves, and we ended up having a little hangout in the woods before we went to bed. We also didn't have to pull security through the night. This meant no one had to stay awake throughout the night, whereas any other night, we would. We were positioned about a quarter mile from a little lake called Tobacco Leaf Lake. It was a real muddy lake. Everywhere around us was very thick woods with even thicker, tall grass. Even a little bit of an eerie feeling, like you were being watched when we would be walking around. If you've ever been up in thick Kentucky woods and seen the tall grass that goes above your head, the stalks that tower over you, the terrain that switches from tall grass open areas to thick patches of woods with rolling hills mixed between. It's not ordinary terrain. In fact, I rarely even saw a deer, but I actually snuck up on a fawn one day while being point man. Anyway, before we went to bed, we had a gunfight with blank rounds. This was part of the training. So we made a bit of commotion. It was time for bed and everyone zipped into their sleeping bags. It was cold out that night, the coldest it had been the whole 42 days I was at Fort Knox. I snacked on some beef jerky my mom sent me and went to sleep, and so did everyone else. I estimated it was around 12.30 a.m. when I started to drift out of sleep and became fully awake when I began to hear noises. These noises were whooping noises and footsteps approaching all of our quiet sleeping bodies on the ground. Keep in mind, we are all sleeping in sleeping bags, spaced out in a triangle shape. It started to get closer, 
And at that point, I was wide awake, completely zipped in my sleeping bag. Again, I'm a hunter. It sounded like two feet walking, and it would stop and shuffle its feet at times. The first whoop I heard was loud. It would walk around 10, 20 feet, then it would stop and go whoop, whoop, whoop. But here's the weirdest part. After it would do the whoops, it would be followed by a very fast clicking noise. It almost sounded like how a gorilla clicks its lips in videos I've seen. I wish I could attach an audio recording of myself doing it because I can imitate it pretty well to what I heard. The sound was consistent. Every time it would stop, it would whoop, whoop, whoop. Then clicking noise, nit, 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 nit. I am a hunter. I've heard all types of animals, and to this day, I cannot identify this noise. To resume the story, this is where readers will get mad at me, but you cannot judge me because you were not in the situation. After I was fully awake, the animal had made its way into the complete center of our triangle sleeping area, which was in the middle of the woods. There's no structure, just sleeping bags on the ground. When it stopped in the middle, it made the sound again loud as ever. At this point, I was very nervous and had no idea what was standing about 10 feet away from me. I contemplated moving my hand to unzip my bag to try and snap a picture with the flash, but something in my brain told me to stop. Instead, I laid there and listened. It eventually did its same routine and kept moving in a straight line away from our encampment. Believe me, I was shaking. I believe it didn't even know we were there, and it seemed like it got separated from where it was and was calling to find others. With my heart pounding, I heard others that must have woken up from the noise rustling around in their bags as I said out loud, what the fuck was that? No response. I went back to bed and heard the sound fade into the distance. The next morning, we all woke up and immediately started going around and asking others what they heard. Most people didn't really care, but I did. I'm also a light sleeper, and we were all tired from training, so I wouldn't be surprised if everyone just slept right through it. About six months later, I contacted our group chat and brought up the question again. What did you guys hear? No one had an answer for it. Well, except one know-it-all that wasn't even a hunter insists it was a skunk. That same morning, I looked around for tracks or hair, but we had to move out of the area shortly, and it's all dry dirt or leaves, so I didn't find anything. I still have no answers for what it was. Up next, in the remote mountains of northeastern Washington, what starts as a routine adventure for two best friends takes a mysterious turn that leaves them on edge and questioning the unseen entity that seems to be haunting their remote campsite. My best friend Rob and I do an annual hunting trip the third week of October every year for early deer season. We take a whole week off of work and set up camp to stay the full week. This is a very remote area in the northeast corner of Washington State in the mountains and we're typically the only people up there the entire week. In 2017, we arrived on Saturday at our hunting spot and set up camp, which took a couple of hours. We use a big canvas hunting tent that we can both stay in with plenty of room to move around and store all of our gear. Of course, we know of the legend of Bigfoot or Sasquatch, whatever you want to call it. We're from Washington State, it's part of our culture. With that said, at some point the first day after we set up, I did a few tree knocks and a Sasquatch call to see if we might get a response. 
Fun and all, but you never know, right? My buddy Rob was a skeptic at the time and had no interest in the Sasquatch thing whatsoever, but tolerated me as a best friend does. We got nothing back and went on with our day and didn't give it another thought. We're there to hunt, so that's what we were focused on. As I remember, we went out the first afternoon to hunt for a few hours, and then returned back to camp after dark. Nothing happened out of the ordinary the first night. The next day, we woke up early to get out to a spot to hunt for the day. That day, we returned to camp early afternoon for lunch, and as we turned to head down the dirt path to our camp, we immediately noticed a small tree that was uprooted like a carrot, roots and all, and placed across the path. Rob and I looked at each other and Rob said, that wasn't there when we left this morning, and from what I can remember, he was right. This was very weird to say the least. I hopped out of the side-by-side -side to walk over to take a look. What we realized right away was that something had carried this tree and placed it there. There were no dirt drag marks like you'd see if someone or something had drug it there. I picked up the tree, and a bunch of dirt fell off the large root ball, and the small tree was actually fairly heavy. We proceeded to look around and inspect both tree lines on both sides of the path to see if we could find the source or a hole where it was pulled from. We looked around for 20 to 30 minutes and couldn't find anything. Something or someone carried that tree and placed it over our path. We moved the tree, took a few photos, and carried on with our day. We decided to set up two game cameras in camp to hopefully catch anything that might be messing with us. We set up one behind our tent and one in the middle of our campsite, facing our camp table. We headed back out to hunt after lunch and again returned after dark. This is when the distant knock started. We hopped out of the vehicle and right away heard a knock in the distance. Then another that sounded like it came from an opposite direction. Rob was scratching his head, wondering what could be making knocks in such a remote area in the mountains. We soon realized that this was some kind of a signal that would happen every night. A few days later, we returned back to camp after dark. As we turned down the entrance to our camp, we saw a second tree. We noticed it immediately, but this one was much bigger, around 25 feet tall and very healthy. Rob hit it with his flashlight and I snapped a couple of photos with my phone. This tree was big and it almost hit our camp table. There was no wind all that day, in fact, there was no wind the entire week. We couldn't believe this was happening. It was really hard for us to wrap our heads around it all. At this point, it really started to feel like we were in danger. If a tree that size was pushed over onto our tent at night, it could kill us. We thought about this and talked about the possibility of this happening. As soon as we jumped out of the side-by-side, we heard a knock that sounded closer than the night before, then another from a different location. Again, it was like they or whatever it was were signaling or communicating in some way. A couple more knocks and then it stopped. Again, Rob and I were really on edge at this point, finding the trees and then hearing the knocks both nights when we arrived back to camp. We made a fire and carried on, fixed some dinner and eventually went into the tent to go to bed. At some point later that night, Rob woke me up. The knocks had started again and were really loud and sounded very close. This was about 2 or 3 a.m. And this would happen for multiple nights at approximately the same time. We decided we needed to exit the tent to try to see if we could see anything. So we got dressed as fast as we could, grabbed our sidearms, and ran out of the tent in opposite directions. 
We met with each other on the back side of the tent and scanned the woods with their flashlights. We stood there for a while, quietly, and just tried to listen. We stayed outside the tent for maybe 15 or 20 minutes, looking around the camp and talking about what was happening. We eventually went back into the tent and back to bed. On day four, we slept in a little the next morning, since we didn't get much sleep during the night. I remember getting up tired and looking at the big tree that had been pushed over in the middle of our camp. Rob was also up, and he reminded me that we had set up one of the game cams in the middle of camp, and that it should have caught the tree going down the previous day. I'll never forget this. He walked over to the tree with the game cam and said, Nate, get over here. You're not going to believe this. I walked over and he punched at the game cam. Something had placed a dead moth backward and slightly squished it over the eye of the camera. This seemed bizarre to both of us. We stood there confused for a few moments and then Rob flicked the moth off of the camera and started to check it for any photos. The only thing we got was some really dark pictures but nothing before or after these photos. The next night I was asleep, and Rob was still awake lying on his cot. He said he heard something moving around the tent. He then heard what he said sound like a stick being drug all the way around on and across the tent until it reached his side. It went right by his head. This is very unsettling for me to hear. Every time we returned back to camp, multiple knocks from multiple areas would start. By the sixth night, we're both exhausted and stressed out from lack of sleep. To be honest, I was afraid to go to bed in the tent again, but reluctantly went to bed that night, anticipating that we were going to get harassed and terrorized again. So we both had trouble going to sleep even as tired as we were again. Around 2 or 3 a.m., we were woken up by the knocks. They were very loud and sounded like they were right behind the tent. Both of us were also angry at this point. We were both sleeping with our clothes on to be ready to go out of the tent faster if we had to. Again, we went out of the tent and in opposite directions. Around the tent, we stood there again and didn't hear anything. Nothing was moving or running away. We scanned the forest with the flashlights again and Rob caught some eye shine across the field that appeared to be high off the ground. We both shot our guns in that direction, thinking that maybe we'll scare it off whatever it was. I'm not sure that was the smartest thing to do looking back on it, but we were desperate and wanted all this to stop. With our adrenaline still high, we stayed up for a while, but eventually went back in the tent and dozed off. At some point after all this, I woke up again and heard something growling right behind my corner of the tent, right behind my head. It was a loud, deep, guttural growl. I was terrified and I laid there for a minute wondering if I had just dreamed this. Then it happened again. This time I woke Rob up. It happened again two more times for a total of four growls. Rob heard it too. We rushed out of the tent again and saw or heard nothing. How could this be? How could something be that close to the tent but it's not there? How could something move away so fast without us hearing it? Whatever this was, it seemed to have special abilities and was getting the best of us. We still had one more day and night to go on our trip, if we were to stick to our original plans. The next morning I checked the other game cam behind the tent hoping that it had gone off and caught whatever was growling at us. There was a series of photos from that night that had a ghostly white mist in them. Nothing else. So that was probably a breath from something, 
we decided to call it and spend the last night at a family cabin on a lake around 30 minutes away from the hunting camp. We needed some sleep and we couldn't deal with it anymore. Finally, a group of college friends hiking in the Trinity Alps of Northern California encounter a pack of Bigfoot that surround their campsite, seemingly attempting to scare the hikers away. My encounter happened in July of 1996 in the Trinity Mountains of Northern California. My roommates and I are up for summer break from Humboldt State University, and we decided to go backpacking for the weekend, as we often do. We originally planned to visit the Ruth Lake Trailhead, but it was raining hard, and our group decided to ask the rangers at the forest station where there was a good place to hike. My roommates from the Los Angeles area decided to be smart asses to the ranger, at which I was mortified as my dad spent many summers as a park ranger in Crater Lake, Oregon, and Mount Rainier, Washington. I remember the ranger taking offense, and I saw a gleam in his eyes when he pointed out a nice trail for us to take in the Trinity Alps. We hiked about five miles up Steed Canyon and found a flat piece of real estate next to the Raging Creek. There were some nice granite slabs that we hung out on and bathed from that afternoon careful not to get swept away by the swollen creek. At around 10 that night, we were sitting around a pre-existing campfire on some logs that have been arranged around it in a square. We had all heard voices of what we thought were some people approaching our camp from above. We got ready to greet other backpackers, but realized that they were coming from the top of the mountain down a very steep slope, not the trail that followed the creek of the canyon. Their voices were deep and sounded like the samurai chatter of the Sierra sounds I've heard online and referenced in other accounts. Recorded in 1971 by Ron Moorhead in the Sierra Nevada mountain range are a series of vocalizations that are known as the Sierra sounds. Take a listen. understand it, of course, but the tone was unmistakable. Basically, someone is in our territory and we're not happy about it. I directed my crappy flashlight at the silhouettes as they skirted our campsite and caught a pair of eyes locked on me. They were whitish-yellow, large, and far apart. My reaction was one of disbelief, and the basic mindset that I seem to adopt for the rest of the encounter is telling myself over and over, this isn't really happening to me. I swung my flashlight off the spot, and then when I came back to it, the eyes were gone. Just then, the stomping and hooting began, slow at first, and then building to a crescendo. The ground shook with every stomp. We all shared looks of shock and disbelief, and at that moment, I experienced the worst fear of my life. I resigned myself to the fact that I would probably die soon. When the stomping and hooting finally stopped, I assumed the voice to be the male as it was deep and commanding. It barked some orders, and I thought they were now about to attack. Below us were the higher-pitched sounds of the females who responded to the orders. A few moments later, we heard huge splashes in the creek from upstream. Either they were throwing huge boulders into the creek or jumping into it. Their voices were excited now, like a party or celebration. 
Then it went silent maybe a minute or two later. We then heard the siren-like scream from the top of the canyon. I could feel it reverberate in my chest. I've had people try to convince me that these were just some people playing a prank on us. I always respond that there was no way a human can hike up that mountain that fast in pitch blackness. I also don't think anyone can scream that loud, even with amplification. Whatever made that noise was massive. It sounded like the cross between a lion and Tarzan, and it seemed to be proclaiming its dominance over the region. I was just relieved that I was still alive and that they had moved farther away. After a while, I lay down in my tent. I heard something walking outside and pulled my sleeping bag from my ears. My tentmate asked if I'd heard anything, but I was still in the, this can't be happening mode. So I replied, nope. Just then the campfire went dark with the silhouette of the creature. I literally choked on my scream, petrified to make any noise. I could only watch the shadow as I was completely paralyzed. I remember its fingers groping the seam of the zipper and its breath pushing the tent fabric in and out. I can think, but my body couldn't move. I thought I should grab my camera, but was paralyzed with fear. I also remember getting the sensation that the creature knew I was aware of it and scared to death. I must have passed out from fear. I don't remember anything after that until I woke up at daybreak. I searched the area with a very new perspective that morning and found nothing except deep impressions on the trail, but no clear tracks. Other than that, there was no trace of our encounter that night. I've never been shy about telling my story. I will always recount the episode when requested, even in potentially skeptical audiences. I've never really worried about what people thought of my account. I know what I encountered even if I didn't get a good look at the creatures. I've endured some ridicule, but I'm not afraid to stand up for what I believe and all who challenge me leave assured that I'm speaking the truth. They may not believe it, but they all tell me they believe that what happened to me actually occurred. That is all for tonight, dear listeners. Until next time, I'll be leaving you in the dark where whispers linger and shadows dance. Stay wary, sleep well, and beware the Bigfoot in the night. If you have a story to tell, please reach out via email at contact at campfirecultpod.com or leave me a voicemail message at 720-297-8608. You can follow us anywhere on social media at Campfire Cult Pod and online at campfirecultpod.com. And finally, if you don't mind, please rate and review wherever possible. 